Sometimes global crises can reveal structural weaknesses and lead to long-term change. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. But what exactly will be the implications of the coronavirus pandemic? Will this crisis transform our economy, our society, our democracy? Or will we return to normal almost as if nothing ever happened? While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. And what about us as individuals? What effect will it have on the way we live, the way we work and interact? One thing I think coronavirus crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society. I'm Matthew Taylor, the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. My organisation has been at the forefront of social change for over 260 years. And over the coming weeks, I'll be speaking to scholars, business leaders, politicians, journalists and more, and asking them one key question. How could and how should the pandemic change our world? Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. I'm delighted today to be joined by Isabel Holton, who's a journalist, a broadcaster, particularly an expert on China. Isabel, before we start, uh, how is the kind of, how are you? Well, thanks for asking, Matthew. Yes, I am well, thank you. Um, I am stuck at home. I'm, I'm in North London. It's very, very quiet. I run a, an organisation which was largely virtual anyway, and so we are pretty well adapted to continuing to operate in this new era. We try to have a few social Zoom events as well as the work Zoom events that, uh, that we're doing. So ad- adapting and adjusting, I think, but so far so good. And your your business, your online organisation, that's uh, about China, yeah? I'm the founder and CEO of China Dialogue, which is now a series of multilingual platforms which looks at China through a lens of uh, climate policy, environmental crisis, uh, China's global footprint, China's impact on the oceans, on Latin America, Southeast Asia, as well as in China itself. So we publish in both directions from China. We have an office in, in Beijing, who are now volunteering to send us masks, by the way, if, you, <laughs> if you're short of them. But since China went global, we also operate globally. So essentially, we are trying to build up a kind of rational and hopefully cooperative conversation on these issues. Well, so much to talk about there. But I'm duty-bound to ask you the question that I'm asking everybody appearing uh, on this podcast just to just to get our conversation going and so Isabel how do you think the world could and should change after this pandemic has passed? Well well, if you take the optimistic view um, that the never waste a good crisis perspective I think what we've seen so far is that people have accepted a view of the role of the state that just three months ago would have seemed unthinkable or impossible. And given that the other crisis that we live day to day, which is the climate crisis, demands radical thinking and a willingness to tear up existing models, I think that perhaps this crisis could 
help to enable that. You know, it's not going to go away, but it might give people a different sense of of what's possible and and of that behavioral change can be both necessary and kind of surprisingly productive. So that's my hope. It's quite eerie, isn't it, when you read people who had been predicting pandemic, the possibility. You know, most experts on resilience, on long-term planning, they put it very high in the list of, of threats that we faced. They say, well, if we could spend a few billion dollars of preparation, then we could help to deal with something which could otherwise be catastrophic. And it's eerie not only because largely governments didn't listen but also because it sounds so much like what climatologists are saying to us as well. So is your hope in a sense as well that because in a sense the things we didn't listen to about the pandemic are so similar to the things that we have to listen to when it comes to climate change that the one could help us with the other? You would certainly hope so. And I think that if you look at the at the way the argument around the, the pandemic has been evolving, you see very much very much the same lines, including actually some of the same people. So the far right have tended to be coronavirus deniers, if you like, or it's it's not so serious, or the doctors are lying, or here's a quack um, medicine. And some of them have explicitly made a connection between the action that governments have taken over limiting the spread of the virus and what they attribute to uh, climate activists uh, as, as a desire to shut down the economy. So you see this kind of commentary emerging in certain sections of the press. Um, on the positive side, we've come through a time when expertise has been denigrated, when raising concerns uh, which are science-based has been denounced as uh, you know, fake news or various kinds of hoax or alarmism or self-interested. So I would hope that this experience might uh, at least correct some of the more extreme rhetoric that we've, we've had to listen to over the past few years and perhaps make people understand that science actually does have a role. It does have something serious to say. And you can deny it all you like, but it doesn't change reality. That idea as well, that Responses to the crisis being, as it were, refracted through people's political predispositions. Uh, that applies too, doesn't it, to the way in which people are talking about China in this crisis? Because it seems to me that there are two really strongly contrasting stories. The, the first is a story that says, in some sense, China is to blame um, uh, for uh, what has happened, uh, that China has covered up uh, what has happened. Um, and that in a sense, China, you know, it's a different kind of argument, but China stands to benefit from this. So there's a kind of cluster of paranoia and antipathy there. On the other hand, there's another story, which is, well, China has actually dealt with this incredibly effectively, that China has shared what it knows about the virus and its nature and responses to it with the world. And as you said a few minutes ago, and is now offering kind of philanthropic support to other parts of the world in terms of masks and other bits of kit. Now, I suspect that you will argue the latter account is more useful than the former, but is there any element of truth in both sides of that argument? How should we understand? What, what are we learning about China in this crisis? Well, it's a rapidly moving situation in China as elsewhere. But given your two propositions, I, I would say both are true. Uh, they're true for different reasons, I think. It is absolutely 
true, as far as I'm concerned, that this uh, virus emerged in Wuhan, closely associated with a wet market of the kind that should have been shut down after the SARS epidemic in 2003. So first of all, there's a responsibility in the failure uh, to manage these markets and in fact to manage China's whole relationship with wild animals and that includes body parts, that includes wildlife crime, it includes lamentable hygiene and, and a whole set of superstitions which tail into Chinese traditional medical beliefs that if you consume a, a part of an animal, you take on the characteristics of that animal. All of that, as far as I'm concerned, is part of the responsibility added to which you have the uh, the problems endemic in the political system, that there is no mileage for a Chinese bureaucrat in bringing bad news to the boss. So you would honestly rather shut up the bearer of bad news, as they did in this instance, over at least three weeks, rather than admit uh, to a problem on your patch. That three weeks was absolutely critical in allowing uh, what was a relatively small outbreak to become first an epidemic and then a global pandemic. So in you know, to that extent, China is absolutely responsible for this. When the seriousness of the situation uh, finally got to the, the top of the of the political tree, then China mobilized as China can mobilize, given, and that's the virtue, if you like, of the political system, that when they decide to shut things down, things do shut down. So, yeah, both things are true. Now, would it have been preferable if China's early warning system had not been contaminated by political interference and political fear right at the start? Absolutely, because this perhaps would not have, have happened. It certainly wouldn't have happened in the way that it's happened. It might not have become a global pandemic. Do you think that it will lead to change in China? Do you think there's a recognition? There certainly seem to be some public anger, particularly associated with the, the doctor who first flagged this up and what happened to him. And of course, he tragically died, I think, didn't he? Um, he did, yeah. Do you think that this will lead to change in the way that China does things? Well, that was, I think, a highly emotional moment. Dr. Li Wenyang, who raised the alarm, as you said, in a, a social media post, actually, to, to classmates, to fellow medical personnel. Um, he was an ophthalmologist in Wuhan, subsequently caught the virus and, and died. In, in his final days, he continued to post on social media. He became an um, absolute symbol to people all over China of the a kind of a figure from deep in China's culture, which is the righteous official who tries to speak truth to power. This this is a, a figure probably common to many political systems, but certainly in China goes way back into imperial times and, and is a hero. Uh, he's a popular hero. He became a popular hero. He died and there was a massive outpouring of grief. What you've seen since then is the regime trying to, uh, trying to regain the narrative the narrative is now one of, of tremendous competence of having dealt with the virus. They have declared uh, Dr. Li Wenyang an official martyr. So they've even co-opted the man uh, who, you know, who represented speaking truth to power. Power has tried to co-opt his image by declaring him a martyr. And, and they've also, you know, put a lot of effort into 
emphasizing China's uh, official, if you like, philanthropies. So, you know, medical supplies to Italy, uh, doctors, expertise, conferences with with uh, medical personnel in Latin America. You know, China, the kind of the source of an effective policy and effective advice and supplies, which after all mostly come from China these days anyway. Now, internally, um, the benign and effective Communist Party, which has delivered you from this scourge, uh, is also held up in contrast to the bumbling Western democracies who can't seem to get their act together and the absolute black hole of the United States in terms of either global public goods or domestic policies. So, you know, they have a pretty clear run in that sense uh, if they're trying to persuade their own population uh, that, frankly, they're lucky to live in China, better to live in China than to live in New York at the moment. This whole thing is likely to also to have constrained Xi Jinping's power a little bit. And this is the first major setback that Xi Jinping has suffered. He came to power in 2012. He's run an extremely authoritarian regime, concentrating power very much in his own hands. And the problem with that is that if you have all the power, in the end, you take all the blame. So when things begin to go wrong, you know there aren't very many people to sacrifice before people start to look at you. So whilst I very much doubt that we're going to see any kind of popular uprising against the party, I think that inside the Communist Party, where most of China's politics actually happens, there may well be a sense that Xi Jinping has to accommodate other people's wishes and desires and complaints a little more than he has to date. Uh, I think about a week ago, Donald Trump and President Xi spoke for the first time, I was amazed to hear that, you know, they hadn't spoken for several weeks and they hadn't spoken in the early stages of this, but they had a conversation. What do you think is currently happening in terms of Chinese-American relations? And what do you think the broader ramifications of this? Because after all, one thing that we do know is that America is going to emerge from this crisis enormously damaged economy, huge levels um, of debt. So in as much as what was happening before this crisis was an implicit competition between China and America, it looks at the moment as though China emerges from that much stronger and America much weaker. Perhaps, although I think that's not too clear. One difference between them is that uh, the United States has thrown a lot of money at this problem. China hasn't really yet thrown a lot of visible money at this problem. You know, China suffered an absolutely catastrophic drop in its first quarter figures. You know, it was kind of minus 11, 12%. You know, for a party that has uh, that has based its right to exclusive power on uh, a rising economy for the past 25 years, you know, it's not at all clear how the party deals with that. It was already beginning to be a problem as China came out of that cycle of catch-up and uh, double-digit GDP growth. And it was down to 6% and beginning to have some difficulty in managing what that meant for its social policies and, and what that means for all the burdens that the economy has to deal with, like a rapidly aging population and the difficulties of getting through the middle income trap and all that kind of thing. So 
although, of course, the United States is, you know, the, the implications for the US economy are, are, are pretty stark, as they are, no doubt, for the British economy, the Chinese economy is going to be pretty problematic also. If you imagine as, as Chinese industrial and economic activity picks up, if it does, in the in the second quarter, its markets are, are pretty damaged. So, you know, if you're to the degree that China still depends on exports and on being the world's, you know, global manufacturing hub, that's going to be pretty constrained. And I think there's also going to be a, a, a sense, and there already is much discussion about reshoring. I mean, that had already begun because of the trade war, a sense that, you know, it was time to bring manufacturing back home. We don't really know how the world is going to feel about the kind of levels of consumption we've enjoyed in the past two or three decades, largely because of, of the China price. But it may well be that consumption is less of a, of a driver than it has been, which again would impact China. And I think the other thing that I would look at in terms of China's global influence and its economic competition with the United States is the Belt and Road Initiative, which is this massive rebuild infrastructure around the world uh, and all roads lead to Beijing project, which Xi Jinping launched in 2013. Now, that involves some oh, 100, 100 plus countries now. And the infrastructure that China builds uh, is, is partly built as a development project for the host country, but it's also a way of using up surplus capacity in China, since you know China is now overbuilt in infrastructure and it no longer creates value, uh, but it has all this um, steel and cement and you know expertise that it w wants to deploy in new markets. So all of that is going on, but who's paying for this? China's financing it, but it's financing it through commercial loans to the host countries at commercial rates, and a lot of countries are getting into some trouble with these uh, debts to China. Now, if we have a global recession, those troubles are only going to deepen. And how China deals with that, how China deals with countries that are deeply indebted to it for infrastructure that Chinese companies are building, that's going to be a bit of a reputation breaker or maker, depending on how China decides to deal with it. As long as Donald Trump is president, the soft power much easier for China to deploy. It's, it's, you know, the US, the destruction of US influence under Trump has been quite remarkable. And that's left a vacuum that China is very keen to fill. So it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting dance, I think, without a clear winner for the next, um, for the next several years. You've talked about climate change. You've talked about a global economic situation where actually, if major economies try to go it on their own or, or compete with each other, the consequences are unpredictable, where there's a very strong face for trying to collaborate globally on a recovery kind of package. So in both those areas, strong reasons to collaborate, for the global order to kind of refresh itself, to renew itself, for institutions to become more effective. But of course, there is another argument, which is protectionism, competition, that under this kind of stress that conflicts get worse. Drawing <laughs> drawing on your, your experience and insight, you know, if I had to make you bet on one of those two outcomes, <laughs> the benign or the, the benign on the malign, which way would you go, Isabel? 
Oh, uh, what is it? Uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, <laughs> isn't scale, it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I look. If you look at both China and the United States, both have ultra nationalists who are trying to pull their nations in one direction, and they have the more collaborative, from my perspective, rational strands that point out that global problems need global solutions. I mean, after all, it's been, it has been much commented on that this crisis, this global crisis, is remarkable for the absence of global leadership. It, it is the first thing that I can remember on this scale where don't see at least some attempt at leadership and coordination among Western powers. They are simply absent. It's extraordinary. And so this is one of the things that left the, the stage to China. Uh, the deterioration in US-China relations, you know, it, it is on both sides of the aisle in, in the United States. And it did begin under Obama. But under Obama, there was one strand of US-Chinese policy that really thrived. And that was climate collaboration. For all the ultra-nationalism in China, and there is a very strong thread of that, China hasn't had a big problem with climate denial. They understand basic physics, the high preponderance of engineers in the senior leadership in China. And they understand what that can do. Uh, they understand what the risks are to China. Like any major economy, they have a lot of vested interests to untangle, and it's very difficult to turn around very quickly. But they've also seen the opportunity piece. They've seen uh, that China can become and has become, in many respects, the supplier of goods and services to a carbon-constrained world. So they invested hugely in renewable technologies, in electric vehicles, and so on. And that's kind of the key to their economic future. So they're not going to, they're not going to resile from that. If I had to bet, I would hope that the human race has some kind of sense of self-preservation and that we can't find ideological accommodation with China easily, but we can agree that we have a common problem that demands a common solution. And there is a framework for that. So I'm hoping that at least that element of global cooperation gets a stimulus, actually, after this, gets a better result than it has so far. Well, I'm so pleased that you've, you've, you've plumped slightly, of course, with all sorts of reservations, but on the, the positive side of what may happen. Last last question as well. We talked about really big issues, but is there any anything else, one other thing that you would like to see change after all of this? Well, I, you know, curiously, I think we will all have had this rather uh, extraordinary experience of being at home for, I mean, very much at home for, what, two months, maybe, by the time we come out of this. Probably like you, Matthew, I spent an awful lot of time on planes flying around the world, uh, going to conferences, going to meetings, making speeches on platforms. And I think that one thing that may well stick is that we travel on Zoom rather more than we, we travel on aircraft. I, I think I'd rather welcome that. I'm, I'm beginning to uh, appreciate the delights of not having to go to Heathrow and sit in a tube. <laughs> I, I think Maybe the world will finally, you know, that kind of all the technology has been lying around. We just haven't changed our habits. Maybe this will change our habits enough that we can all live more relaxed and slightly less stressful lives and achieve just as much. I think you're absolutely right. There already was reasons to cut down 
on global business travel because it was expensive because of carbon because the technology for webcasting and for conferencing was getting better the crisis is then going to accelerate that psychologists say it takes eight weeks eight weeks to embed a new habit well we're all going to embed this new habit of communicating online and so there is every reason to believe that the world won't uh, revert as it's been a fantastic conversation thank you so much for giving us your time it's been a huge pleasure thank you very much for asking me That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.